All right. Well, it is good to be with you, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to worship with you guys together this morning. Looking forward to opening God's Word with you. Uh, if you are new or visiting, like John said, especially want to say welcome. Glad that you would join us. And, and I say this every week because not just because it's part of my routine, because I mean it. And if you are new or visiting, we would genuinely love to get to know you, help you get plugged in here at River City, help you become a part of the community here. And so come find me or, or Dustin or anybody else that's been up here or John. We, we would really love to get to know you, help get plugged in. So uh, excited as well to continue our series, walking our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so hopefully our study so far, the last uh, probably six months or so by now, has been helpful and good for you. I know that it has certainly challenged and encouraged my own heart as we've walked our way verse by verse through this book. And I am always encouraged and challenged every week as I see how incredibly timely and timeless God's Word is. This 2000, nearly 2,000-year-old 2000 letter is so deeply connected with the very things that, we, that are happening in our own lives and in our own world right now, and I'm so grateful for that and, and why it's so important for us to always study God's Word together. So, um, so like I said, we've been going through 1 Corinthians, but if you've been gone or if you're just joining us for the first time, let me just briefly catch you back up on where we're at before we dive into our time this morning. Like I said, 1 Corinthians is a letter in the New Testament. It's written by a guy named uh, Paul, who was an apostle. He actually wrote this letter to a church in the ancient city of Corinth, uh, and it was a church that he actually helped plant, helped start about five years before he, prior to the writing of this letter. And so, much like River City is just about five years old, uh, the church in Corinth at the time of this letter is right around five years old, and so it's a young church. And and so Corinth, uh, the city itself, was this incredibly important port city. It controlled most of the kind of east-west trade between Rome and the, and the rest of the Mediterranean. And so it was incredibly wealthy and influential and important in the ancient world, in large part because of its location. But it wasn't just an important and wealthy port city, it was also a new city. Rome had conquered the city of Corinth, let it sit desolate for a good hundred years, and, and about a hundred years prior to the writing of this letter had decided to resettle it, mostly with freed slaves and former army veterans and people who were looking to make new lives for themselves and new identities and new names. And, and so what you see happening in the city of Corinth is that it is full of people who have this upwardly mobile and aspirational mindset. And, and that idea and understanding that context is so important because this deeply aspirational and upwardly mobile mindset, it was really at the heart of the very, the very foundations of the Corinthian society. You see, in Corinth, the thing that everyone cared the most about was climbing the social and economic ladder or maintaining their place at, at the top. It, is, it was the highest priority for the people of Corinth. One commentator, I think, just so helpfully sums it up this way. He says, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. That doesn't sound anything like the world we live in at all, does it? Oh, it does. You're right. It does. Yes, it does. <laughs> you see, tragically, what we see is that the church in Corinth, it was no exception to that. It just reflected the, the worldview of the Corinthian society all around them. And as we've studied the letter so far, over and over what you see is that their highest priority is not God's glory. It's not the advancing of his kingdom. It is very clearly and very evidently their own glory and the, their advancing of their own social status in the world around them. And as you can expect, that was causing all kinds of problems in fact, this self-centered mindset, this idolatry of self was at the heart of pretty much every one of the problems that the Apostle Paul has to address in the course of this letter. 
And we don't have the time to recap all the issues we've seen that's causing in the book so far. That would take all the time we've had. Uh, but instead, what's important to understand is that our passage this week is a part of a, a kind of like a little section in the book in chapters 11 through 14 where Paul is specifically confronting the self-centered ways that the Corinthians are acting in the context, the specific context of their worship gatherings. Throughout the letter, he has confronted all kinds of self-centeredness and how its implications throughout their church, but in these chapters, he's focusing on how the way that they're acting is, a, is an outworking of their self-centeredness, specifically in the context of their worship gatherings. We saw two weeks ago in the first part of chapter 11 how this self-centeredness was leading the Corinthians to participate in their gatherings in ways that were minimizing and disregarding and even undermining God's good design for men and women to both equally and yet distinctly bear his image. They were undermining the difference between the genders. And as a result, what was happening is they were drawing attention away from God and onto themselves, which, which should be no surprise is the exact opposite point of a worship gathering. It's together to worship God, not to worship ourselves. And last week in the second half of chapter 11, we saw how additionally the way that they were celebrating communion was similarly undermining the very point of communion in the first place. Instead of communion being this opportunity for the community of believers to remind themselves and to remind one another about, about their ongoing need for and dependence on Jesus' sacrificial and substitutionary death on their behalf. Instead, the wealthy Corinthians had turned it into yet another tool for celebrating and elevating their social status. And they were distinguishing themselves from the fellow believers who they felt were lower on the social ladder than themselves. And Paul has to confront all of these things. And he's continued to remind them about the truths of the gospel which empower us not to live for ourselves and our own glory, but to live for God's glory. And to live for the good of one another. This week, actually for the next few weeks, we're going to be studying chapters 12 through 14. And, and what we're going to see Paul doing is that he's going to have to confront yet another way their self-centeredness is wreaking havoc in their gatherings and causing problems in the church and undermining their very purpose to live for God's glory. What we're going to see is that he has to confront the self-centered ways that the Corinthians are understanding and exercising their spiritual gifts in their gatherings. And what should come as a surprise to absolutely no one at this point is that the Corinthians were using their spiritual gifts, especially the more miraculous or visible ones, to elevate and promote themselves and to climb the social ladder in Corinth. And all of you are like, oh, I can't believe it. Hopefully, no, hopefully none of you said that, right? Because that's just like that's just right on, right on par with everything else we've seen throughout the whole letter. And what we're going to see Paul doing is he's coming in the coming chapters, he's going to systematically undermine the Corinthians' understanding and their use of spiritual gifts. And he's going to teach them not, not only that God empowers his people by his spirit for the good of the church as a whole and for God's glory rather than their own personal benefit or their own personal glory, but what we're going to see in the coming chapters is that the greatest gift of all, the, the spiritual gift that should be most celebrated and most prized and most valued, isn't just miraculous healings or heavenly tongues, but in, is instead a radically selfless love for God and for others. That's the, the true ultimate gift. That is the thing to be most valued and most prized and, and most cherished. A selfless love that builds up the community of Christ and points others to him. 
But before we dive into the next three chapters here or so over the coming, the coming weeks, before we dive into that, what I want to do actually this week is actually take some time to set up a bit of a perspective shift with regards to spiritual gifts themselves. And what I hope is that this will help to shape and inform the way that we actually look at the upcoming chapters as we study them together. And, and really, as we look at what the rest of the New Testament as a whole has to say about spiritual gifts, and what I want to show you this morning as we kind of set the stage for the next three chapters or so in the book of 1 Corinthians, is what I want to show you this morning is, as we study is that spiritual gifts are not special God-given abilities. Spiritual gifts are not special God-given abilities. Instead, they are opportunities for ministry that have been appointed and empowered by the Spirit of God for the sake of building up the church and glorifying God. Let me say that again. Spiritual gifts are not special God-given abilities, but are instead actually Spirit-appointed and Spirit-empowered opportunities for ministry that serve to build up the body of Christ and to glorify God. Now, that might be a little disconcerting for some of you who, like me, maybe grew up in the church because maybe at some point you have taken a spiritual gifts inventory or a spiritual gifts test and you've kind of discovered what your spiritual gifts are and you think that what I have to say this morning might actually serve to undermine kind of that long-held assumption. And the reality is, yes, it probably will. <laughs> yep, it probably will. But... The good news is that what I want to show you this morning is that looking at spiritual gifts, not as abilities, but instead as spirit-appointed and spirit-empowered opportunities to minister on God's behalf is actually incredibly freeing and incredibly empowering. It's not debilitating. And I hope my, my, my prayer for our church is that whether you have been a Christian for a long time or whether you have just started following Jesus that you would be encouraged and empowered to step out in faith and to serve God in this church in whatever ways he calls you to, trusting that he will indeed empower you by his spirit to build up the church and to make much of Jesus. And so that's my heart for us this morning. Let's pray as we dive into that. Buckle up. It could be a little interesting ride this morning. We'll pray. Trust that God will be at work and we'll read God's word together. All right, let's begin. Jesus Thanks so much for our time together. Thanks for your word that you would keep it for us, that you might help us to know you and live for you because of it. We're so grateful to get to study it this morning and to come together to gather to worship you. And, and God, so we just want to come humbly, though, and, and ask, as we do every week, that you would empower our time in your word together. God, we... We need you for every part of our gathering, especially our study of your word. God, we need you to empower us, to empower me to be able to teach and preach, not what just is right, but with power. And that's something I cannot do without you. And God, we need you as a community to enable us to hear and to respond rightly to your word. And, and so in every way, we're so dependent on you. And God, we just humbly ask that, God, for our good and for your great glory, that you would meet us in our study, that you would be shaping our minds and shaping our hearts and, and molding our character so that we might be a people who not only love you and live for you, but, but whose lives reflect your good nature into the world. And so, God, for all of that, we pray your good name. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, just the first section this morning, chapter one through uh, verses one through eleven, begins this way. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed, for you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. 
Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking about the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. For there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. And there are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. And there are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given the, the, through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another one, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. And all these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes to them each one just as he determines. All right, so we read this morning verses 1 through 11 together, but the reality is I'm really just going to focus on verse 1 this morning. We're going to get to the rest of the verses next week, right? Paul says in verse 1 that he, that he, he doesn't want this church to be uninformed. He doesn't want them to be uneducated, to be unaware about the reality of spiritual gifts. And, and that's my heart for you as well this morning. And so like I mentioned, what, what I want to do this morning is to set up some framework for how we should understand and approach spiritual gifts in general before we kind of dive into the specific things that we're going to see in the next couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians. Specifically, what I, what I want to do this morning is lay out for you an approach to understanding spiritual gifts that is probably pretty different than the way that you may have grown up understanding it. But... Although what I'm about to kind of lay out for you this morning might sound a little bit different than what you may have kind of grown up with or come up with, it's actually not new at all. It's not something Aaron or I recently came up with. It's not something some theologian in the last 20 years was like, this is so great, we finally figured out how it works. All right? No, it's actually the way that the early church and the way that the early Christians and its leaders talked about and understood and practiced spiritual gifts in the first place. And, so before we dive into this different approach to understanding spiritual gifts, though, I think i got to do a little bit of deconstructive work. Before we can kind of construct, we need to do a little bit of deconstruction. And if you grew up in the church, maybe like me, I did, then it's, pr then it's pretty likely that your basic understanding of spiritual gifts, your basically understanding of the approach of spiritual gifts is basically something like this, right? When you become a Christian, you are given by God one or more special abilities that you then have for the rest of your life. And, and what you need to do is to somehow figure out what those special abilities are that God's given you and then find a way to use those things that God's specifically given you in service to the church and, and to the world, right? And in order to facilitate that, you probably at some point took a spiritual gifts inventory or a spiritual gifts test or something like that. It probably felt like a lot like a spiritual personality test, something like that, right? You answered a bunch of like seemingly random questions, right? And you're like, sometimes, sometimes not, maybe, maybe, always, always. And you're like sitting there for a hundred questions like, I don't know, I can't tell, I can't really remember what's happening in the middle of this, right? And so each of those questions, they, they end up corresponding with one of the spiritual gifts that's listed in either Ephesians chapter 4 or Romans chapter 12 or here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And at the end of your kind of spiritual gifts test, you kind of tallied up the results and then boom, like you had now discovered what your spiritual gifts were, or at least you had some clues as to like what you could try to see if that was really what was going on. And armed with that knowledge, you were now ready to serve the church and the, with the specific abilities, the specific things that God had gifted you to do. 
And I'll be honest with you, up until about a few years ago, uh, that's the only understanding or approach to spiritual gifts that I had really ever heard before. And yeah, people have different opinions on which gifts are still in use today, right? And we'll actually talk about that a little bit more next week. But overall, everyone basically agreed that that's how they kind of worked in general. And I just assumed that's, it seemed like that's just must how it always have been. And the reality is uh, that kind of emphasis and approach to finding and using your spiritual gifts is actually very new in the context of church history. Uh, You see, while Christians have exercised and used spiritual gifts from the very beginning of the early church, up until the early 1900s, the reality is is that very little was really written or talked about when it comes to spiritual gifts. And what was written mostly focused on the Spirit's role in salvation and sanctification, in other words, in our coming to faith in Jesus and our growing up in Jesus. And, And that's because when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, that is the emphasis that the Bible places on it. The vast majority of the the conversations about the Spirit are around those things. But beginning in the 1900s with the rise of the Pentecostal movement, what what you see is that that movement really focused heavily on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as evidenced, especially through the miraculous gifts like healing or tongues or prophecy or all those kinds of things. And, and so all kinds of books and articles and, and sermons, all kinds of stuff started getting published and read and brought out into the world in, right around that kind of time. And then what you have is in the 60s and the 70s, you have kind of the intersection of this dramatically increased uh, interest in spiritual gifts and that kind of stuff. It kind of intersects with uh, the rise of what's known as the church growth movement. And that's a movement of church leaders that really emphasize using research and sociology and data analysis, basically to, to find strategies or methods to grow the church and to reach people for Jesus. And And that intersection really led to the first spiritual gifts tests being created in the early 70s. And it was around that time that the Myers-Briggs personality test was first published as well. And so the first first spiritual gifts test was actually based very closely on the Myers-Briggs personality test. And and it was actually tossed out because it was way too close and it was basically just a spiritual personality test in the first place. And that's why probably if you've taken spiritual gifts tests, then you know, like I said before, it kind of feels like a spiritual personality tests, right? And throughout the 70s, these tests were refined until in 1979, a guy named Peter Wagner published uh, published a test that kind of became the gold standard for spiritual gifts tests. He, he wrote a book called Your Spiritual Gifts Can Help Grow Your Church. And pretty much all the tests that we have today are can trace their roots back to that one, right? And so this understanding and approach to spiritual gifts as these special abilities that you need to discover and then figure out how to use and kind of take a test to figure out what that's like and all that stuff is actually very new in the context of church history. And although it's about 50 years ago, it's kind of become the de facto, just assumed approach to the way that we think about spiritual gifts. And I think like most new ideas in church history, um, it's, it's actually pretty flawed in a number of really important ways, right? I think when it comes to spiritual things, uh, most things that are new in the spiritual world, you can go ahead and assume are probably not going to be great ideas, right? God wasn't trying to hide stuff when he laid out the gospel and laid out his word, right? It's not like this mystery that everybody's trying to uncover and find out new stuff about. Like, he wanted people to know what was going on and how to follow him, right? And so most spiritually new ideas are usually not great ones, right? But There's a few really key uh, shortcomings, I think, to that approach, and we don't have time to address everything this morning, but I want to just highlight a few things. 
The first is, is just that, that, that this assumption that spiritual gifts are these special abilities that were given by God is, is based on the assumption that that word that's translated in our New Testament as gift or a spiritual gift a bunch of times in Paul's letters, that it implies a special ability. But the reality is it, it just doesn't. You see, in the English, our word gift, it has two meanings, right? The first is just broadly it means something that is freely given, right? Like a birthday present or sometimes we talk about children as being gifts, right? Those kinds of things. Something that is freely given, right? We talk about the gospel and God's grace as a gift. That's something that's freely given, right? But in English, we also use it more specifically to refer to somebody who has a special talent or ability, right? When you hear somebody who's an incredible musician, right? You say, wow, that person is musically gifted, right? Or when you see an athlete, that's just incredible, right? We talk about people having an athletic gift or right, being athletically gifted, And what happens is we bring that second meaning of gift into our reading of these passages about spiritual gifts, when the reality is that in the original languages, that that meaning is not there. It's not a connected meaning in the original language. It, It never was. It's not really a part of that. And so I think there's a little bit of a cultural disconnect there. Moreover, when when you look at the nearly 20 times that Paul uses the word that's translated as gift, there are only a couple of instances where the concept of it meaning a special ability is even remotely plausible. And in the vast majority of them, it makes absolutely no sense at all to think about a gift as a special ability. You just take Romans 1, 11, for example, right? Paul's writing to the church in Rome, right? He says that he longs to see them so that he can give them some kind of gift to strengthen them, right? And it just does not make any sense to think that the gift he wants to give them is a special ability, right? Like, when you read the chapter, what's very clear is he wants to give them himself, his presence of being with them as a pastor who loves and serves them. Similar, if you look at Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, you see is that talk, he's talking about salvation itself. Paul says that the gift of God and the calling of God are irrevocable. Right? Salvation is not a special ability. Right? And that doesn't make sense in these passages. It doesn't really make sense in really any of the other ones where this word is used. And so that word, I think we bring this mean, the secondary meaning of gift into that. That's, that's not really there. But secondly, and more broadly, throughout Paul's writing, when he's talking about spiritual gifts, his focus, his emphasis is never on people finding their own gifts. But it's always on people building up the body of Christ in whatever ways that God's called them to. And we never see Paul encouraging his readers to try to discover their spiritual abilities or to work on them or, or to emphasize them. Rather, he challenges and encourages them to strengthen the community of faith in whatever equal kinds of roles that God gives them. The reality is that, especially in, in, in Corinth, the Corinthians are the ones who are really excited about special abilities. Paul is not. In fact, he's correcting their overemphasis on their special abilities and saying, like, you guys are schmucks. Like, like this is, you didn't do anything. You are not important. Jesus is the one who is important. It's his spirit who's empowering each of you as he decides he wants to, right? Corinthians were enamored with their abilities to perform miracles or healings or prophecy or whatever it might be. And their inordinate attention on their own gifts was making them prideful. What Paul does is he's trying to course correct them throughout the course of these chapters. He's trying to remind them not only that God's the one who has gifted them, not because of them, but in spite of them. And he does it for the benefit of the community as a whole and for his own glory, not for their own personal accomplishments or their own personal glory. 
what you see happening throughout these chapters is that Paul's emphasis is that he wants the Corinthians to serve out of an attitude of humility and dependence on God, not out of one of self-sufficiency that's rooted in their own special abilities that they think that they have. And that leads us to, I think, really some of the practical problems with the kind of conventional view of spiritual gifts that maybe you grew up with. Um, I've been leading for ministries for about 15 years or so now, and what I have seen over and over again is that when, when we approach spiritual gifts through this lens of seeing them as special abilities, it really causes more problems than good most of the time. See, instead of releasing and empowering people into ministry, often this view really ends up just tripping people up and causing all kinds of ministry paralysis, right? What I see over and over is that people spend all kinds of time trying to figure out what their gifts are, really make sure that they know what it is that they've been doing, or, or they, just, they spend a whole ton of time worrying that they're serving in places that are outside of their giftings, and somehow that's like going to ruin everything, Right? And they do that more than they actually spend time serving God and what God's called them to do. And, and I'll just say this. It, this is just an aside, right? But if, if spiritual gifts were special abilities that God gave us and wanted us to use to serve the church, don't you think that in his word he would have made it abundantly clear like what they all are and like how to figure out which ones you have? Like if that's what he wanted, like you'd think that he would make that super clear, but you don't see that. Instead, every commentator, when they look at the lists of spiritual gifts, what they all say is that this is not a complete list. None of these are complete. These, these are meant to be examples of the kinds of things that God empowers and calls. And, and instead, additionally, what you see is an emphasis not on abilities, but on the source of those gifts and the purpose of those gifts being dependence on Jesus and building up of the body, right? When you look at our passage this morning, verses four, 7 through 11, right? There are all kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There's all kinds of working, but in all of them, in every one, it is the same God at work. Now each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And all these work of a work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes just as he determines. See, the, the point is never in any of the passages Spend all your time figuring out what your gifts are. The point over and over and over we see in Paul's letters and 1 Peter as well is, is not figuring out what you are, but, but doing what God's called you to and serving the body in whatever ways there are needs for it. Additionally, I think over the years what I've seen is that this view kind of leads people not to, really to not serving at all or to, stepping into, or, or to not stepping into roles that they've specifically been asked to step into by other leaders because they are convinced somehow that they just don't have that specific gift that they think they might need for that role or because they think that there just isn't a need for their specific gift at that time or in that place. I think the reality is that when you look at the scriptures, what you see is just like they're, God's not trying to find a role for people, right? He's called us all to be his church, to be his body. And so there is a way for all of us to serve in any season, at any time. It's not like we have some special gift that just doesn't fit the puzzle right now. We're all always needed. And lastly, I think most importantly, what I've seen is that when people approach spiritual gifts from the kind of special abilities perspective, what I've seen more often than not is that it leads to a kind of self-focused view of ministry rather than a God-focused view of ministry, right? It leads to a, one where people are just trying to find a place where they can do what they think that they're good at already. 
rather than seeking to, and they're just trying to seek to serve only in areas or ways that they feel strong already, right? Places they feel like they already have what they need to do it. But the reality is, is that God often calls us to serve him, not in areas of our strength, but often, I would say even usually, in places where we are weak and deeply dependent on him. You see, this is actually a reoccurring theme throughout Paul's letters to the Corinthians. See, the Corinthians, they valued strength and being seen as impressive. They valued that supremely. Their culture valued that supremely. And so you're always trying to look strong and to be impressive and to do those kinds of things. And yet what we see over and over throughout Paul's letters is that, is that while they're valuing strength and while they're complaining about the ways that Paul uh, actually boasts in his weakness, then instead what Paul is doing throughout the letters is he's, he is reveling in the fact that he is not strong at all, but that God is. And he keeps pointing out to them over and over and over again the the way to real strength, the way to real power is not through working in ways you think you are already strong, but in being wildly, radically aware of your weakness and insufficiency so that God might be sufficient in you. See, the, the conventional approach, I think, to spiritual gifts as abilities, it emphasizes us serving out of our areas of strength. But again, what I think you see so clearly in Paul's letter is that he emphasizes that sometimes, even often, God chooses to glorify himself by showing his strength in our weaknesses as we serve in ways that he has called us to. I think the reality is that, yes, God does empower us to do whatever he has called us to do. But I want to be clear. uh, He doesn't always empower you with skills to do the things he's called you to do, right? Or special abilities, Oftentimes, the way God empowers you is just by having faith to do it. He empowers you with an ability to trust him and rely on him instead of rely on yourself. And the beauty of that is that he gets all of the praise when incredible stuff happens that you have no business being a part of, right? And God loves doing that because he's the one that wants all the glory, and he's the one that should get it. There's a place in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Prince Caspian. I've been reading through uh, the, the Chronicles of Narnia books with my kids. They love those. But there's this place where Caspian, he comes to be appointed as a king. And, and Aslan, he's kind of like the, kind of the overarching king of Narnia. He, he comes and <clears throat> he asks Caspian, he says, Do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? And Caspian responds, he just says, I do not think so. I am just a kid, Right? Aslan responds to him. You'd think that he'd respond with like, okay, well, buckle up. You're going to need some more training then. No, he responds this way. He says, good. For if you have felt yourself sufficient, it would have been proof that you were not. That's the reality of how it works so often in the ways God calls us to minister. That picture is kind of like a perfect microcosm of the way that God appoints and empowers ministry to happen so often, right? And that it's fruitful not when we're strong, but when we are weak oftentimes and when we are deeply and committedly dependent on him. You see, I think those are just a few reasons why I think the the, the view that I grew up with and and the view that probably most of you as well grew up with when it comes to spiritual gifts is is just not really a very biblical or accurate view of them. Instead, I think a more accurate and biblical view of spiritual gifts sees them not as abilities to do ministry, but instead as spirit-appointed and spirit-empowered opportunities for ministry themselves. 
That definition, uh, just to be clear, I'm not some like theological genius or something, right? I can read and study. And, and so that definition is really a merge of the way that a pastor named Kevin Cauley at a, a church in, in Kansas City area and an author named Kenneth Birding. That's kind of a merge of the way that those two guys talk about that. And I think that's been so helpful. Uh, in his book, uh, Kenneth Birding, he wrote a book called What Are Spiritual Gifts? Rethinking the Conventional View. And, and in it, he says this. He just kind of sums it up this way. I hope this is helpful for you. He says, spiritual gifts should not be viewed as special abilities to do ministry, Rather, they should be viewed as the opportunities for ministries themselves. Every believer has been assigned by the Spirit of God to specific positions and activities of service, small and large, short-term, long-term. These ministry assignments, however long or short they are, have been given by the Holy Spirit to individual believers, and in turn, these individuals in their ministries have been given as gifts to the church. And when you look at what the early church fathers have to say about spiritual gifts, and when you look at where the, how the early church practiced spiritual gifts, that's, that's how they saw them and used them. You see, they saw spiritual gifts not as abilities, but as people serving the church and making much of Jesus. They, they saw them as people who had got it appointed and empowered for ministry and then given to the church as a gift for the purpose of building up the body of believers and building up the community of faith. I just want to be clear, this kind of this alternate view of spiritual gifts doesn't mean that we don't need the indwelling power of the Spirit of God to, to do the ministry that he has called us to do. Of, of course we do. Hopefully that's just like obvious and abundantly clear, right? I'm not trying to say we don't need the Spirit of God to do ministry. Right? That's not what I'm trying to say. It's just that our focus is not on the abilities that enable us or invite us into ministry, it's instead on the fact that God appoints ministry for all of his people to do. And he calls us into it. And he is faithful to empower us as he would see fit so that we might be his body, his hands and feet in the world. So what are the implications of this view for us as a church? I'll try to wrap her up here, kind of land the plane, right? We'll get into the next couple of weeks and deal with all the fun stuff in the rest of the chapters of the Corinthians. But what are, what are the implications of this view for our here as a church? Well, practically, I think, as we study 1 Corinthians, the, the next three chapters or so, chapters 12 through 14, the next couple, couple of weeks here, the invitation is not that you would be spending all of your time as we look at these spiritual gifts thinking, is that my gift? Is that the one I have? Is that what I've been, is that what I've been specially given to do and, and to try to figure out how to use it? But instead, that you would be humbled and amazed by the fact that God chooses to appoint and empower you to minister on his behalf at all. What you see happening in these letters is that God is appointing and empowering these Corinthian believers who are radically dysfunctional. Like it is a hot garbage fire at this church. And yet God is still empowering those people to make much of him and to serve the body. And that should, instead of us focusing on what gifts we have, we should be humbled and amazed by the fact that God empowers us at all in the first place. And that he invites us to be a part of the work that he is doing. Not because of us, but in spite of ourselves oftentimes. And that leads us, I think, to then, instead of asking the question about what my gifts are and how can I use them, instead what that, this view leads us to do is to ask the question, what are the needs of the body? And what might God be calling me and appointing and empowering me to, how might he be appointing and empowering me to meet those needs? 
And what that does is it leads to an attitude of dependence on him rather than on yourself. It leads to an attitude of, of deep rest in him rather than on your own perceived strengths or abilities. In his acceptance speech for his second term in office, um, President uh, George W. Bush, he said this. He said, do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Instead, he said, pray for powers equal to your tasks. I think that that's a really helpful way for us to think about spiritual gifts in the first place, right? Instead of asking God to give us or show us the things he wants us to do with the abilities he's already given us, that we might have the attitude of saying, King Jesus, might you empower me for whatever it is that you have called me to do for you. What that creates in us as a church is an attitude of deep dependence, one of radical humility. It seeks to undercut any kind of pride or self-sufficiency at the very root. See, we should have the attitude of praying that God will empower us for whatever work he calls us to, knowing that without him, you can do nothing. But that with him, whatever he has called you to do, he is faithful to do it in and through you. And I think lastly, instead of just looking for us to serve in the midst of our strengths, what that kind of a perspective will do is it will, it will ask us to ask God to empower us in our weaknesses so that he is glorified. And instead of limiting where you can serve based on your gifts, what will happen is that you'll trust that God wants and is able to empower you to serve in all kinds of ways, in whatever way there is need for his glory when a friend opens up to you about something going on in, in their heart or, or they ask you for guidance, right? You don't say, well, I don't have the gift of shepherding. I don't have the gift of wisdom. I don't have the gift of discernment, right? Instead, trust in that moment that God has appointed for you an opportunity to minister on his behalf and ask him in that moment to empower you by his spirit to serve that person and to glorify him. When you're with a non-Christian friend and you see an opportunity for the gospel to be good news to them, don't say, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Let me go find somebody that does. No. Instead, trust that God in that moment has appointed for you an opportunity to minister on his behalf and ask him to empower you by his spirit to proclaim the good news about Jesus in a way that is beautiful and compelling. When you see someone in your small group who needs to be discipled. Don't say like, I, you know what, I don't know, I just don't really have the gift of pastoring. It's just, not, it's just not really my thing. Instead, trust that God has appointed for you an opportunity to minister on his behalf and ask him to empower you by his spirit to make much of him and to help your brother or your sister grow up in their faith. When someone in your community is sick or is dying, don't say, I don't have the gift of healing. Right? Don't say, I, I, I don't really have the magical powers. I don't, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a surgeon. I'm, I'm not whatever. I don't have it. Instead, lay your hands on them and ask God to empower you by his spirit to heal that person. He may or he may not. The point is not what he does. The point is that he can do it. And that he empowers and appoints ministry opportunities for his people in ways that build up the body and glorify him. Church, might we have that kind of an attitude? Might we be a people who are radically, deeply dependent and yet confident in the power of God to be at work in and through us? See, I think the point, I just want to encourage you with this as we close. 
I think the point is that when it comes to spiritual gifts, uh, along with a whole lot of other stuff, uh, we need to stop looking inward and start looking upward at Jesus and start looking outward at the needs of the community around us, trusting that God by his power appoints and God by his spirit empowers opportunities for his people to minister on his behalf so that the body of Christ might be built up and that Jesus himself might be glorified. See, the confidence that we have for this reality is not rooted in anything that you have done. It's not rooted in your strength or your impressiveness. It's not rooted in anything that you bring to the table, but in everything that Jesus has already done for us. See, that's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion together. See, the reason that we have a right relationship with God and the reason that we can be empowered to be his people and live for his glory is because Jesus died in our place, forgiving our sin and his broken body and his shed blood that they they free us by faith from the power of sin and the slavery to living as our own gods instead instead sets us free to live for him and for his glory. And communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. The Bible is clear that faith in Jesus alone does that. And so if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, I just need you to hear this. I am so glad that you are here. I am honored that you would join us and that you would think about the scriptures with us. But I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Communion is about remembering and celebrating by faith all that we have trusted that Jesus has done on our behalf. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted Jesus to be your Savior and to submitted to him to be your king, then I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Instead, come to Jesus. He is what you need. He is all that you need. He is sufficient where you are not. But if this morning you're here and you've trusted Jesus and you have believed the gospel then during our time of worship, I'd encourage you to go back and take communion. There are two tables in the back of the room, one on the left and on the right, and, and there are, uh, there's bread that you can dip in the juice. There's also the kind of communion snack packs as well, whichever you feel more comfortable doing as a way for us to remember and celebrate all that Jesus has done for us. Then during our time of worship, go back and do that. And as you do, I would encourage you, talk with God. Ask him to show you the opportunities that he has appointed and that he has empowered for you to minister on his behalf. And as we study these next three chapters, ask God to give you eyes to see and to be amazed by him and to increase your hope and your faith and your confidence and your dependence on him. And ask him as well to help, help you to trust him in each and every moment Not to trust in your own strength or your own abilities, but to trust in him that he wants to appoint and empower you to minister on his behalf for his glory and for the building up of our church. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you this morning and we are so grateful for our time together. God, I know that I have gone long this morning and God, I hope and I pray, I trust Jesus that you will cause our time together to be for good in our hearts and lives. And whatever I have said this morning, Jesus, that's been from you and helpful and good, would you cause it to sink deeply in? And whatever was just my own thoughts or ramblings, God, would you cause that to just sift, be sifted away? God, what we want is to be a people who is deeply dependent on you, who are not confident in ourselves or our own abilities, even ones we think come from you, but instead are deeply dependent on you, but also incredibly hopeful and confident, knowing that you appoint and you empower for us opportunities to minister on your behalf. 
And so would we be amazed by that reality and with confidence follow you into whatever you have called us to do for you. We pray these things in your good name. Amen.